Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade. They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if you're locked out on a Thursday and need a locksmith, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details. Listeners should be advised that some of the content in this episode of Inside the Crime could be distressing to some. In the last episode of Inside the Crime, we heard from two of the detectives who interrogated Brian Hennessy. He was incredibly calm and detached, really. He never really betrayed huge emotion. He had time to think about what he was going to say. We knew that he was telling lies. DNA linked the local postman to Sharon, but he was adamant he didn't kill her on that fateful Christmas morning. However, despite his best efforts to get away with murder, Brian Hennessy's mask eventually slipped, and after days of questioning, the truth finally came out. He knew where she lived, and he knew where she was a vulnerable person, and he had walked from the pub to where she was, and it took a bit of time to go there. So he went up for one particular reason. He raped her, and um, then to cover up his deed that he committed, he decided then that he would set the house on fire. Sharon was already dead when he set the fire. He killed her with his bare hands while her girls slept in their beds, no doubt dreaming about what Santa would bring. With the house ablaze, we learned he then made the short walk home where he celebrated Christmas with his own family as if nothing happened. The girls wouldn't have felt a thing, a small mercy for their doting grandparents Christy and Nancy. Almost one year later, just before his trial was due to begin, Hennessy pleaded guilty to the three murders. The rape charge was dropped. And at the sentence hearing that followed, Sharon's brother John addressed him directly on behalf of the Whelan family. I wanted him to listen to me. I wanted him to to take in what I was saying because the victim impact statement wasn't uh, addressed to the court. It was addressed to him. And uh, when I was delivering it, there was no one else in the room, only me and him, in my mind. In this episode of Inside the Crime, we'll find out what punishment the judge saw fit for Brian Hennessy's savage acts of violence. He took three lives, three innocent lives, a young mum and her two girls, gone, just like that. And by taking those lives, he destroyed many others too. The Whelans. They'll never be the same again. We'll also take a closer look at how our system deals with those who commit the most wicked of crimes. How sharp is Lady Justice's Sword. We as a family all hope you will have a very long time to realise and be haunted by what you have done. This court will decide your fate and it's our family's wish that you serve every day of your sentence because God knows we will serve every day of ours. 
After saying his piece, John returned to his seat. All eyes in the public gallery were on him. Many of them blinked away tears as he made his way back to his family. All that was left to do now was for the judge to pass sentence. He told Hennessy to stand. And from the press bench, crime journalist Sarah O'Connor hung on his every word. Mr Justice Barry White at the time, he referred to the devastation that was caused by Brian Hennessy, the fact that the two little girls hadn't woken up to their Christmas presents from Santa that morning. It happened, of course, in the early hours of, of Christmas Day. And so he was obviously horrified by the evidence that he had just heard. Mr Justice Barry White certainly didn't mince his words when it came to sentencing Brian Hennessy. And in a touch of class, he echoed the sentiment of John's words before him by acknowledging the devastation caused to the Whelan family. For the murder of Sharon Whelan, he imposed the mandatory life sentence. She would have a genuine interest in what you're saying and your story, and she'd mean what she'd say. For the murder of Zara Whelan, he imposed the mandatory life sentence. She said, Granddad, you're my taxi driver, and then he's my hairdresser. And for the murder of Nadia Whelan, he imposed the mandatory life sentence. Our self was all about Nadia, Nadia, Nadia. Mr Justice White directed that the sentences handed down for murdering Zara and Nadia should run concurrently, in other words, alongside one another. And then, in a move that stunned those before him, he revealed that Brian Hennessy should serve those sentences consecutive to the life sentence handed down for the murder of their mother. Put simply, he was going to have to serve two life sentences, one after the other. This was met with and received by, uh, you know, members of, of, I suppose, the family and the media in court, even who who wouldn't have really seen this before, with an intake of breath, and you know, it certainly sent shockwaves throughout the courtroom because it was unusual, and certainly Brian Hennessy would have got a shock. He wouldn't have been prepared for this. No one was in that courtroom. Only only Mr. Justice Barry White knew what sentence he was going to hand down that day. So, even the lawyers and the guards were all shocked by this and, and, and surprise. So Brian Hennessy certainly was shocked that, that he was going to serve two life sentences back to back and uh, the judge felt that, that he deserved it, that this was warranted given the, the horrific crimes that he carried out. The sentence itself made headlines. It was sensational. John and the rest of the Whelans who travelled to the four courts wondered about it on the bus back to Kilkenny. Three lives gone. Three life sentences handed down two to be served back to back or would they? Before the courtroom had even emptied that day Hennessy's legal team was already planning for an appeal. Christmas 2009 was on the horizon and by the time the following festive season came around the Whelans found themselves on the receiving end of even more bad news. Well, I was driving and I got a my phone rang and I pulled in the car and I stopped and it was a guard phoned me and said that Brian Hennessy won his appeal. He's only got to get one life sentence. And they says, what do you mean? He says, after getting his appeal, has to be, his sentence has to be overturned to one life sentence instead of two life sentences, one for Sharon, 
one for Zara, one for Nadia, but Nadia's and Zara were to run concurrently. And I says, what do you mean? And he says, there's have to be an overturn. And I says, how I wasn't told? And he says, I'm telling you now, he says. The phone, John, he says, I've got to get the phone, John. Uh, they're trying to make sense of it, and I was trying to make sense of it, and I was going to say, look, it, as far as I know, it means that uh, the the sentence is for the three girls now is running uh, concurrently, which means he's only going to serve one life sentence. And my parents couldn't get their head around this. I couldn't get my head around this um, because, like I said, straight away, it, it's it's after diminishing two lives. It's after saying t- to the family, uh, you know, the state does not recognise those lives that were lived, no matter how short. Um, like, they were citizens of this country and, and they, they deserve better. I'm back on the road. Well, tracks, actually, as you can probably hear. I'm heading west to NUI Galway's law faculty where Tom O'Malley has kindly agreed to meet me for a chat. Tom is one of the most respected legal minds in the country. He's a barrister, recently appointed senior counsel, actually. And he's also an associate professor of law at NUIG, where he has spent decades shaping the minds of young aspiring lawyers, myself included once upon a time. Tom has written the book on sentencing, literally, and I want to pick his brains. I started by asking him if he could shed some light on why Brian Hennessy's sentence was overturned so easily. I suppose it largely not because there's any kind of law in the matter, but just as a matter of logic, that a life sentence is, theoretically, as we were saying earlier on, supposed to last to the person's life. And it does last to the person's life in the sense that the person is liable to imprisonment for the rest of their life. So since you have only one life, you know, life sentences cannot be made consecutive. They can be concurrent, and they very often are which, you know, means that a person is serving three or four maybe concurrent life sentences. Again, you know, that doesn't make much sense either, you could say, because, you know, there, there's obviously only one life sentence operative in any, uh, one, in any one person's case. But it's more a question of, um, I suppose, uh, it's, it serves the, the judge in that case... I mean, what he was doing was more an expressive function or exercising a more expressive function, which is perfectly understandable to say that in view of the horrific nature of this case, you know, multiple life sentences are appropriate. So put simply, the life referred to in life sentences is the offender's life, not the victim's. It's Brian Hennessy's life, not Sharon's or Zara's or Nadia's. Brian Hennessy only has one life to give. That's why he can only serve one life sentence. That's why his appeal was successful. That's why it wasn't contested. Mr Justice Barry White may have felt that his crimes deserved more than just one life term. But Irish law doesn't allow for that. That was just over 12 years ago now. But the law hasn't changed much since. Judges' hands are still tied when it comes to sentencing murderers. They have no discretion, no sentencing tools at their disposal. It's a one-size-fits-all approach, regardless of who did it, how they did it, and why they did it. Our politicians make our laws, and up until recently, a lifer could apply for parole after just seven years behind bars. 
that has changed, but has it gone far enough? Here's Tom O'Malley again. The all-important decision on whether to release the person, conditionally or temporarily or whatever, is an executive decision. It rests effectively with the government, although in effect it would probably be made by the prison service or, or the Department of Justice. But it certainly isn't a judicial decision to release the person. That's done at an executive level. So at the present time, uh, a new parole act has been passed, and that is defective enough in many ways, I have to say, But one of the things that it does do is that it provides that a person serving a life sentence cannot even be considered for parole until they have served 12 years in prison. So that means that everybody who gets a life sentence is guaranteed to remain in custody for 12 years. Of course, all they have an entitlement to at that point is simply to be considered for parole. They may not get it, and in fact, we have to wait and see how it works out. But typically, people don't get parole the first time they apply. So, you know, they'll still probably be serving considerably in excess of 12 years before they actually get released. So once Brian Hennessy was led away to begin his sentence, his fate kind of rested in the political sphere. At least the final say on his release lay there. After just seven years, he was entitled to apply for parole. But even if his release was approved at that point, which it wasn't, the Minister for Justice of the day would have to sign off on it first. That doesn't happen anymore. In fact, the new laws in relation to parole took effect last August. As Tom mentioned earlier, they've extended the length of time before someone like Brian Hennessy can apply to be released, from 7 to 12 years. For the first time in our history, the parole board is now entirely independent, so it and it alone, has the final say when it comes to releasing prisoners. But what say, if any, do people like Christy Whelan have? Is his voice heard when it comes to considering whether the man who killed his daughter and two granddaughters should be released? If Brian Hennessy comes up for parole next week, and we have to write a letter to the parole board saying why we think that this man should not be released, right? They read that letter. It is put into an envelope and brought down to Arbor Hill and gave to Brian Hennessy for Brian Hennessy to read that letter. So those left behind don't have a seat at the table, but do have some input in the form of a letter which can be presented to the parole board. What weight they're given is unclear. And as Christie says, the prisoner is entitled to see what they've written, which brings its own stress to the author. It's important to point out that it's very rare for someone like Brian Hennessy to be released at the first time of asking. In fact, the average time a lifer spends in prison these days is about 20 years. But that's cold comfort to families like the Whelans, whose anxiety levels go through the roof when the review date comes around. They don't know if he's going to get out. And Christy dreads the day he does. Brian Hennessy could be released. I mean... If I met Brian Hennessy going down the street in Kilkenny, what would my reactions be like? How, you know, how would I feel? Like, would I, you know, it's hard to, to say that here you're facing a man who's after destroying your whole family life. My whole family life was destroyed. My life was destroyed. I always enjoyed going out football matches, hurling matches, uh, you know. Uh, for all my life, I used to help people, used to be there for people, and all that was all just gone on the wayside. 
and here's a man that's done that all to me how would I react or how would the state react if that man offended again if that man took out another who would be responsible what would the state do the Whelans say they're still searching for justice that they've been let down by a system that they feel is more focused on giving Brian Hennessy a second chance at his life than giving them peace of mind for the rest of theirs. It's a troubling thought, but none of us know how we'd react if we found ourselves in Christian Nancy's shoes. So I asked them both what they think would be a fair sentence. Oh, and just in case you think I'm the one out of breath here, I should point out that we're back in the Whelan's lovely home in Winegap, and Lexi the dog is the one panting, not me. She has endless energy, but I think she finally tired herself out, bouncing around the place, desperately trying to get Nancy's attention. I would never want to see him out of jail. No. And I wouldn't kill him or anything. If anyone would give me a gun, I would not shoot him. Or I wouldn't do anything to him. But I don't think he should be out of jail. It's too soft. They're getting too soft. They're, oh, and anyway, jail is not jail anymore. They have a good time in jail. You know, and at that, he should be quite satisfied at the way he did. What about yourself, Christy? Yeah, you often hear people saying, oh, those people deserve a second chance in life. You often hear that. And when I hear that, my God, I'd say, well, he can have another second chance in life, but Sharon and the two children have no second chance in life. You know, why should he have a second chance in life? Because his hand's done it. And he should pay. He should stay behind bars for the rest of his life. He should only come out of of where he is in a box. Because that's where my daughter and my two grandchildren were laid in coffins up there. I think he should come out of there in a coffin. The legal system in Ireland is absolutely disgraceful. Put them in our shoes. You know, it's all right, you always have to make sure, but just put them in, in, in our shoes. And there are many people in our shoes, you know what I mean, uh, would be talking the very same, because we meet those people when we go to, to those places and go up to the dolls, protest about them getting out for weekends with their families. That's not, that's not a life sentence, like. As I said before, you see them having birthday parties in prisons. That's very, very, very hurtful. I wonder if they think it was at all. I don't think they do. Christy and Nancy are two of the kindest souls you'll ever meet. They welcomed Sharon into their home and family when she had neither. They raised her as if she was their own, and in their minds and hearts, she really was. They wouldn't wish ill on anyone. They don't want an eye for an eye but they do feel Brian Hennessy should spend the rest of his days behind bars. That is an option when it comes to life sentences in Ireland. People can spend their whole lives in prison, but the reality is, life doesn't really mean life in that sense. Most prisoners are released at some point, and a licence then hangs over their heads for the rest of their days, meaning their freedom can be revoked at any given time. But should we consider introducing whole-life orders should they at least be an option when it comes to sentencing people for the most serious and heinous crimes? 
It's a two o'clock good afternoon. The former British police officer who murdered Sarah Everard has been told he'll never be released from prison. Wayne Cousins has been handed a rare whole life term by a judge at the Old Bailey in London. His sentencing hurt. He handcuffed the 33-year-old as she walked home from a friend's house in Clapham in March before killing her. Sky's crime correspondent Martin Brunt says the judge decided he deserved the toughest sentence available. He's talked about police being in a unique position and he viewed Cousins' misuse of his police powers to falsely arrest, kidnap, abduct, rape and murder. Sarah Everard did merit a whole life sentence. The debate around whole life tariffs was reignited here in the wake of Wayne Cousins being handed one for murdering 33-year-old Sarah Everard in London. He was a police officer who tricked Sarah by using his warrant card and handcuffs to make a false, COVID-related arrest. She was walking home from a friend's house. He's appealing that sentence, but it got people over here wondering if we should introduce something similar, again, just for the most serious cases. This was one of the things I asked Tom O'Malley when I visited him in NUI Galway. Well, whole life orders, of course, I should say, are rather peculiarly British, first of all. Uh, the European Court of Human Rights has repeatedly found Britain, uh, well, at least on one occasion, in violation of the European Convention of Human Rights for having these whole life orders if they don't provide any realistic prospect of release. Now, I suppose you could say that some of our life sentences could turn into whole life orders, because don't forget, not absolutely everyone sentenced to a life sentence in this country does get out. There are one or two cases of people who have spent 30 or 40 years Uh, and I think there may be still some such people uh, serving more than 40 years in prison. There are very, very few, I might add, for for murder in this country. The difficulty with whole-life orders is this, that irrespective of what kind of change the person goes through while they're in prison, irrespective of how safe it may be to release them, uh, that they simply cannot be released. And it gets back again, effectively, to our philosophy of punishment and what we believe punishment should do. It tries to do a number of things. I mean, obviously, there is what we call a desert or a retribution basis to it, which means that people deserve to be punished for the crime they have committed. It's also intended to deter. But there's also meant to be a reformative basis to it. And also the idea of redemption, that no matter how bad the crime the person has committed, there must remain the possibility that they can redeem themselves eventually and get back into living within society again, if they are deemed safe to be to be released. So, whole life orders are unlikely to ever be introduced here in Ireland. And again, to be fair, there is the possibility of a lifer seeing out their days in prison if the parole board doesn't feel it would be safe for them to return to the community. And that got me thinking a little bit more about parole. I mean, the fact that someone on a life sentence can't apply to be released until they've served at least 12 years means there's effectively a minimum tariff already in place, albeit one set down in law and not handed down by a judge. But why don't we allow our judges to do that? One of the cornerstones of our sentencing philosophy is proportionality. The sentencing judge must look at the whole picture, the offence and the offender. It's a case-by-case approach, but that doesn't happen in murder cases. It can't. In 2013, the Law Reform Commission published a wide-ranging report on mandatory sentencing. 
It initially recommended getting rid of them altogether, but rode back on that in the end. However, it did recommend giving judges that power to attach minimum terms to be served as part of a mandatory sentence. But as far as we can see, it didn't really go anywhere. We decided to give John a bell to see if he could shed some light on it. Hello? John, how's it going? Frank here. Good. Well, Frank, well, how's things? Not too bad. How are you keeping? Good. I'm good, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, nice to, nice to speak to you again. One of the reasons that I'm calling you today is just Ashley and I came across um, a report from the Law Reform Commission. This was published in 2013. And I just wonder if you're aware of it. This report now was far reaching. It took them yeah. an awful long time to put it together, it seems. Yeah, I skimmed no, through I, it. Yeah, it was literally the first time I've heard of it. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yes, it was totally off my radar. No one, no one, inf- uh, no information around it at all. Well, it's interesting so. to hear you say that, John, because I can't find I can't find anything on it post publication in the sense that I don't think that and I was hoping maybe you could shed some light that perhaps we've just missed it. Ashing is here too by the way. You're on you're on yeah. speakerphone, I hope you don't mind John. Yeah, that's fine, yeah. <laughs> um so I couldn't find anything, Ashing couldn't find anything to suggest that this was something that was discussed. Basically one of the recommendations that the Law Reform Commission came up with in twenty thirteen was that minimum that judges should be allowed impose minimum terms in mm. sentences, something mm. similar that they do over in the UK, they certainly do it in the United States, it clearly doesn't happen here. Yeah. I, I don't know, did that go anywhere? Clearly it wasn't something that was on your radar. No, the only incident of, of minimum sentencing that I was a- anywhere aware of was certain uh, firearms offences and drug offences. Um, outside of that, uh, research done into it or reports or um, anything like that, research uh, meeting uh, ministers and other TDs and um, never never came up in discussion. Never, but was never brought to my attention. Following that call with John, we discovered that a private member's bill to introduce minimum prison terms for murderers was debated in the Shanith four years ago. The families of murder victims were in attendance, but it wasn't supported by government and it didn't go any further than the upper house. Interestingly, we also learned that Tom O'Malley was one of the authors of that 2013 report that made the recommendation in the first place. He also thinks there's a better way of doing things. I would be quite happy with one of two things. One would be that the mandatory life sentence of murder would be abolished completely, that it would be replaced with a maximum of life for murder, and that there would be then set up uh, guidelines which could be set down by the Judicial Council as to you know what kind of terms should be imposed in different kinds of situations. Or alternatively, and perhaps this is maybe the more realistic one, I think politically probably it would be more palatable, uh, but I'd be quite happy with it, where we would keep the mandatory life sentence for murder, but instead of leaving it to the parole board entirely, that a judge will be able to indicate at the uh, when imposing sentence what term the person should be required to serve before being eligible for parole. And then all that would mean is that the person would be in custody for that time and after that then it would be up to the parole board to decide. Some people mightn't like to hear it, but prisoners have rights too. Brian Hennessy has rights and the main aim of sentencing people like him isn't just to punish him. Sure, there has to be an element of retribution, but it's not just about vengeance, deterrence 
and the rehabilitation of an offender have to be taken into account too. The Irish Penal Reform Trust is an independent charity that was set up to ensure a person's human rights are upheld while in prison. I thought it only fair to get their thoughts on sentencing murderers too. Hello, Molly. You too. I wasn't sure whether I just required you. Molly Joyce is the IPRT's legal and public affairs manager, a role she's been in for about a year now after returning home from London, where she practised as a barrister in public and police law. The charity is committed to reducing the number of people in our prisons. It believes prison should be a last resort. It was interesting to hear Molly's thoughts on sentencing, and she was very understanding of the Whelan's frustration with the justice system. I mean, IPRT totally can understand that for victims they can very much feel, you know, the criminal justice system can very much feel like they are just completely left aside. And that's because ultimately it is the state taking a case um, in a prosecution. It is not the victim, which I I think maybe is a fundamental, and and for good reason, I mean, why would people understand that if, if they've never been involved in crime in a criminal case? But that people don't often really understand that it is the state who's taking the case. Um, and that can mean that victims often are kind of left as a kind of nearly like a sideline issue when, of course, for them, it's their whole lives. It's incredibly important. You know, we totally agree that there should be reforms to try and improve that balance and to make sure that people um, feel supported throughout the process and at the very minimum, you know, informed about what is going on throughout that process. Molly seems to share Tom's view on mandatory sentences and whole life orders. She's against them but sees the value of potentially letting judges set minimum prison terms in certain individual cases, but only if there were clear guidelines set down as opposed to a more rigid, tiered system that you see elsewhere. Our system as a whole is kind of based on the idea that, you know, we do have rehabilitation as one of our principles of criminal justice and and how we kind of respond to crime and that there does need to be a kind of a possibility for someone to give someone the potential for hope that, and, and the idea, the belief as a kind of societal, on a societal approach, you know, that someone can change and that someone has the capacity to become a better person. And, and also, and, and, you know, again, I, I want to be sensitive in terms of, you know, for victims, I understand, you know, if you're affected by this, it'd be very hard to kind of believe this, but as a kind of overall system, a societal approach, you know, that someone can, is more than the worst thing they've ever done and has the capacity to reform to be a better person. And I do think, from my own point personally, I think that that's an important thing as a society to kind of believe about people and to kind of have that kind of a, a criminal justice, a penal system that does believe in the potential of humans to become better with support and um, while also recognising that people, you know, punishment is a legitimate part of the criminal justice system that absolutely has its role, but that we also have this other aspect and that that can only be provided if you allow someone the possibility of release someday. And one thing I would say is in terms of tariffs, while we are open to the possibility of offering judges the discretion to do that, we would be opposed to minimum tariffs for murder. So, for example, even in the UK, my understanding is that there's a kind of set period of like 15 years, 25 years, 30 years, based on certain factors. I don't think we'd want to see that kind of very prescriptive, these are the numbers you have to apply, because what we think is that it is absolutely discretionary. Every case is completely different and it should be based on the facts themselves. So, you know, yes, allow judges to set a tariff, but don't 
prescribe any minimum periods that have to be served and um, you know and by virtue you know already we kind of have a minimum period of 12 years because that's set out in the parole act but certainly none beyond that we, we wouldn't want to see that it mightn't seem like it from the outside looking in but sentencing is a very complex area of law and when it comes to sentencing and murder cases or at least trying to change the way sentences are constructed and handed down There are so many competing rights, so many competing functions, retribution versus rehabilitation. Whose life matters most, the offender, the victim, or is it ours, the rest of society? It's a delicate balancing act, and maybe that's why the law doesn't allow for any discretion. The path to reform is a well-worn track with countless obstacles for a hardened campaigner like John Whelan. He's been working so hard to raise awareness and affect change since that Christmas morning almost 13 years ago now when his sister and two beautiful nieces were taken from him in the cruelest of ways. During my last visit to John's house, I asked him how he keeps going. I've been campaigning now for 13 years around this. I know you mentioned earlier on and you, you, know, you asked the question, what do I hope to get from this? Uh, I hope to get, at a a minimum, momentum towards a conversation where all the vested interests in in a justice system, a just justice system in this country, can actually sit down around a table and have a conversation. That's all I'm asking for. That's all I wanted from day one, is for that to happen. Because I feel we're not being listened to. We are being shoved to the margins all the time. We are sometimes at worst, it feels like, you know, we're being treated sometimes a very condescending way. But we deserve better. Our loved ones deserve better. And people have said to me, why do you do it? Just, why can't you just stop? Just, you know, why? And my answer is that if if we stop, we're not honoring the girl's memory. We, I, we can't stop, you know. If the hardship of going through things like telling our story over and over and over again, and it never gets any easier, but if at the end of it we get to a place where we're having a conversation about a justice system that fails victims, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth every second of the pain. I think it's worth every second of the upset that 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 would be a consequence of something like this. In the next and final episode of Inside the Crime, we're going to see if there's a political appetite for reform. And if there is, how does that even come about? We're also going to take a look at how Brian Hennessy would have been dealt with by a judge across the water in the UK. We'll be joined by the man who represented the infamous serial killer, Rose West. And we'll also go stateside to hear how someone who took three lives in the way Hennessy took Sharon, Zara and Nadia's would be dealt with by the US system. Dean Strang, one of the attorneys who represented Stephen Avery in a case made famous by the Netflix true crime doc Making a Murderer, will be with us. And we'll also be going back to Wine Gap to get the final thoughts of Christy, Nancy and John and we'll talk about what they hope Sharon and the girls' legacies will be. 
Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on newstalk.com forward slash podcasts or on the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud for episode five of Inside the Crime out next Tuesday. Inside the Crime was hosted by me, Frank Graney, produced by Ashley Moore. Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade. They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if you're locked out on a Thursday and need a locksmith, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.